great comfort in knowing that His is indeed the kingdom, the power, and the glory. That we are His and He is ours. Brethren, if you would, this morning, turn to the epistle to the Romans, chapter 1. Epistle to the Romans, chapter 1. I'm, I'm going to tell you up front, just as by way of, of, a, of a provision, that this is not the typical kind of sermon I normally preach or that I'm even most comfortable preaching. Not because of the topic, but because I usually do best when I can take a, a, a passage, a smaller passage, and break out implications, applications. And, uh, you know, uh, this is a t- case where we're going to do it in the opposite today. We're going to take the 50,000 foot view over Romans chapter 1. We're not going to exegete the entire thing, we're going to hit highlights, key points as we work through it. But what I, what I want you to see today, brethren, is, is my, my real goal is that we would be recommitted in our understanding of what the gospel is. Right? We have said at, at Resurrection Church that we desire to be a Christ-centered, gospel-driven church. That, that is something that's in our, it's in our core uh, commitments right there on our website. This is what we want to be. A church that majors on the majors, minors on the minors, holding tenaciously and deeply to our convictions, that we say, look, there's a, there's a key thing that unites us with other brethren who love the Lord Jesus and truth. There's a clear commission that impels us, compels us forward to be fruitful, to seek to multiply disciples for Jesus Christ in this church. That, that, that is our calling. And so... It's imperative that we get a grip on the gospel. We believe the gospel. And as we think to that end, um, I'm not, I'm not going to start by reading the entire first chapter. Brother, brother uh, Bob, um, we, he read uh, verse 18 to 32, the second half, earlier. Uh, but, but as we begin today, um, I just want to remind you again of why, why we're doing this. Um, in Canada, as you know, Bill C-4 uh, I just, again, I, I, I marvel at the providence of God. That, that bill is like C4. It's just explosive. Uh, that, 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 I find that truly funny. Um, but um, it's destructive. But, um, you know, what's interesting about dynamite is it's both destructive, but often dynamite blows holes in things and opens up new passages that you wouldn't have imagined, new ways forward. Uh, when, when, when construction guys use dynamite, they're normally trying to blow things away so that they can clear a path for something to go through. So uh, even dynamite is, is part of the power of the Lord. And, and we're going to see that uh, the gospel is actually described using the word uh, that we use for dynamite here uh, in this passage. But the reality is in C4 in Canada is, is a dis, uh, deliberate, uh, un, unequivocal attempt on the part of the government there to assert themselves as God, as an idolatrous God, to usurp the authority of Jesus Christ, His righteous reign, to put the state up as the supreme authority in God in His place, made in the image of man, defining righteousness according to their standard, not God's. This is, a, this is nothing short of the sort of showdown that, that you see there in 1 Kings between uh, you know, Elijah and the gods of Baal. And right now in Canada, there's a lot of MPs that are, as it were, dancing around their altar, making gyrations and all about this Bill C-4. And, and, uh, and you know, the question, the question is, who will you serve? 
right? And in light of the threat of the wicked Ahabs and the Jezebels who are threatening, uh, we're going to lock yourself up for five years if you, if you uh, talk about Jesus and conversion. We've got brethren who, in the name of Jesus this day, are saying we believe the gospel. We are aligned with the king and not just with Jesus, but with his kingdom proclamation. We must serve God rather than men. It's an attempt to silence, as it were, the bad news. To silence the bad news that needs to be called out. To say that there is no need for conversion. Those who are, whether, whether it be an abortion and in, in murder, or whether it be through LGBTQ plus perversions, that there's no need, they're saying, for them to be converted in anything. But rather, in, in the state as God, those things are all perfectly acceptable and even prized and cherished. And so we're going to call the Christians who disagree and who won't bow the knee to that God, who won't give the pinch of incense and, and submit, we're going to threaten them. We're going to threaten them with harm. And the truth is, brethren, as the church has done in every age, that when a false gospel, which is not a gospel, Canada is proclaiming this is good news. <laughs> brethren, this is not good news. There's a song years ago um, by... Uh, by a guy that, again, I was dating myself, I was sending, sending out all these old songs on Slack. But anybody remember a guy named Steve Camp? Anybody maybe remember Steve Camp way back? Okay, that's all right if you don't. I'll tell you about Steve Camp. Um, Steve uh, Camp wrote a song years in mid-'80s, dates this, but he wrote a song uh, which is very prescient. Uh, it was called Bad News for Modern Man. Now, I always liked that title. Because it was, a, it was a direct call uh, about the, you know, the church that was just proclaiming everything's good. The, the spirit of the age in the Christian church, even in the world, that was saying, you know what? God just loves everybody as they are. Just accept people. Be nice. Be kind above everything else. Don't be offensive. No offense to the cross. He wrote this. He said, there's a tiny heartbeat. Hasn't seen the light of day. Her mama's only 14. Does she keep it or throw it away? She says her life's too crowded. This kind of trouble she don't need. So she hands the doctor money, and after all, it's not a human being anyway. It's just bad news for modern man, for the human race. When you turn your back on him, then evil takes his place. It's bad news for modern man, bad news for the human race. When you turn your back on Jesus, there's nothing but evil that takes his place. Brethren, that's what Paul's talking about here. And the clarion call for you and me, not only me as a minister of the gospel, but for you as ambassadors of Jesus is to say, we will not only believe the gospel, but by God's grace as opportunity, as we pray and we say, Lord, would you open opportunities for my neighbors, for people with whom I work, to speak your truth, to testify of the hope that's within me, as Peter says, right? Lord, may I be faithful to proclaim both the bad news truly so that in proclaiming the bad news, people will see that the good news is truly good and they will see that there is a hope in a true gospel of righteousness and salvation in Jesus. So 
I just want us to consider these things today. Really, the, the, the heart of Romans 1, and yea, the book of Romans in general is this, is that the good news of God's salvation of sinners from the just penalty and the cursed power and bondage of their sin requires the proclamation of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. And it requires then that we be very clear about the bad news of man's heart of idolatry and unrighteousness and God's just wrath against sin and sinners. Salvation comes only as we expose, as we who are the light of God, as we expose darkness, perversion with the light of God's truth and His righteousness. And we speak the truth from sincere love, especially in our day about the sexual abominations and gender perversions and the reality of murderous abortion on demand that have left our nation stained with blood and under the curse of the living God. So let's consider just two key things. I'm going to, as I said, break this into two parts. Good news for modern man. I'm going to follow Paul's outline, and then we're going to look at the bad news for modern man. Let's look, first of all, at the good news. What is this gospel that we say that we believe and that we are called to proclaim, to hold fast, and, and to not shrink back from? Paul, you see there in Romans 1, he starts and says in verse 1 that he's a bondservant set apart as an apostle, one sent by Jesus, separated out to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. We're going to call this First of all, let's look and see. This is the gospel truth. This is the substance of the gospel, of the reality of the gospel, of the message we declare. It's a declaration of good news from God about God. You notice it says there, it's the gospel of God that He promised. It's the gospel from God. So the very God who has just and righteous wrath in verse 18 against sin and sinners is the one who has sent forth good news to those very sinners, to save them from His wrath. Isn't that amazing? And it's interesting, I won't have you turn there, but 1 Timothy chapter 11, the Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy there, he he says that the law of God is good if it's used lawfully. And then he goes through a list, uh, and he shows how every one of the Ten Commandments, which he's going to reference here in verse 18 to 32 in a moment, but every one of the Ten Commandments, he says that, that the law of God is good if you preach it and you use that law to expose the sin, the, the, the commandment, the unrighteousness of men as means to drive them to Christ. That's the first use of the law, right? Scripturally, and he says that that's that's not the only use of the law for the righteous. We love his law. It is our delight day and night. But the first use is to drive people to Christ. That's the the thing that it does. But he concludes that he says that these things that the gospel is for all these evil, abominable practices and anything else that is according to sound doctrine and accord with the gospel, the glorious gospel, verse 11 of the blessed God. And what that means there is that this glorious gospel of the blessed God is the gospel which itself is, reflects the glory, the righteousness, the manifold perfections of God. And it's the God 
who himself is the word blessed, they're makarios, the God who is supremely satisfied and happy in himself. And so the gospel, the glorious gospel of the blessed God, is the good news that God's purpose is to reconcile men to him in right relationship for their joy and his glory. Right? To make things right. Peace to those who are far and to those who are near. Because the reality is, as John Piper is right, God himself is the gospel. The, the good news of, that we preach is not an end in and of itself. Get your sins saved. Amen. Have them washed white as snow. Get a new heart. Amen. You need one, don't you? I do. But those are means to the end. The end is that we would be reconciled to God as sons and daughters of Him and walk in fellowship and unity and peace with the God who made us because He Himself is the good news. I don't want heaven, brethren, if the glorious God of the gospel is not the sun that illuminates, and if Jesus is not the light. If that's not, you can keep your streets of gold and all the things there. If God himself is not there and is the glory and joy of it, it's not the place I want to be. It's God's presence, walking in his light. And then delight in Him, fellowship with Him who is supremely glorious and beautiful and worthy. It is that which makes heaven glorious. Brethren, that's the gospel that we see. It's the gospel of God. And Paul describes it here. He goes on, he says, It's a gospel which is the fulfillment of God's prophetic word and promises. Verse 2, just, you know, these are the things that had from Adam to Abraham to Moses to David and the prophets, there had been uh, prophesied about a seed who would come, would crush the serpent's head, undo the curse. Far as the curse is found, he would undo the curse and restore men back to the tree of life and to the fellowship of God in the Garden of Eden, but in the last day on the New Jerusalem, which has become the Garden City, which covers the world. But again, the tree of life is there. The throne of God is there. It's glorious. But this has been prophesied that this seed would come and that he would crush the serpent's head. He would bless the nations. He would rule over God's eternal kingdom, said to David, and that he would be that suffering servant, Savior, who would redeem his people from their sins and be their good shepherd and rule over them. It's also a declaration of glad tidings about God's Son, most fundamental, not not only about the prophetic word fulfilled, but look what it says in verse 3 and 4. The gospel is fundamentally the goodness of restoration with God, but it comes through His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he, he describes what that looks like. Jesus Christ the Lord is the Savior of His people from their sins. That's what the word, the name Jesus means. Galatians 4.4 4 says, He gave Himself for our sins that He might deliver us and save us from out of this present evil age according to the will of God. And He is the Christ. He is the Messianic Davidic King, Lord of Lord, King of Kings, ruling over the eternal kingdom which shall have no end, is the Prince of Peace. It's what Christ means, the anointed one. And he is, as he says, the Lord of lords, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, so he is the rightful heir of God's kingdom promised to David. He was declared 
to all the world, both by the apostles and by all that seen him. Afterwards, as Paul says, he was seen first by the apostles and then by, by, by 500 and then, you know, and, and to James and John. And then finally, Paul says, by me as one born out of due time. He was seen, he was declared in the world, taken up in glory, Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 3, right? Seen by angelic hosts, declared throughout the world. This gospel went forth. And Jesus was declared before all the world to be the Son of God. Not just a Son of God, but the unique, only begotten, the unique uh, Son of God, the perfection of the image and fullness of God. Colossians 1. Why don't you turn there just real quick? We see what this means when we talk about Jesus as the Son of God and what the implications of it are. Colossians 1. This is really probably the classic passage on this, but... Let's read this again. I, I, I love the way Paul puts this here. After talking in verse 13 about how he delivered us this salvation out of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, redemption and all that. He, this is what it means when he says that Jesus is the Son of God, the only begotten of God. Here's verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Again, that word firstborn does not mean that he was, there was a time when he was not. The firstborn speaks of the right of inheritance. He was the firstborn to whom the Father has bequeathed all of his inheritance for the sake of the household of God. He is the firstborn over all creation, says there, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all rulers, all levels and rank of rule and authority in heaven and earth were ordained, created by Him, through Him, for Him. And it says in verse 17, He is before. That means He is above. He is the head of all things. And in Him, all things hold together. They consist by the word of his power. He is the head of the body, the church, who himself is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, that idea of him being the heir of the kingdom, of the keys of the kingdom, and of the inheritance for the sake of his household of God, so that in all things he may have the preeminence. Brethren, that's what it means. The gospel that we proclaim, the good news of God, is about Jesus, that Jesus. He has all power. Notice what it says there. He was declared to be the Son of God with power. That means He has, again, all authority. That word there with dunamis. He has not only the authority, but He has the ability to enact God's will. The power to do it. To act on His authority. He has all authority in heaven and earth, Jesus said, Matthew 28. All authority... Power in heaven and earth has been given to me. In John 3.35, Jesus said, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And He says that in John 5, All judgment has been entrusted to the Son by the Father. Jesus, we're told in Ephesians 1, is now seated in the heavens far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, and every name that is named. And He is the head of the body of the church in which his fullness dwells. That's the idea. 
And you notice that this is not only that he was declared to be the Son of God with power, but he was done so by the Spirit of holiness. So brethren, where the gospel goes, there will be holiness that will follow. The Holy Spirit. I can assure you that where the gospel goes and is received in truth, when men are transformed, holiness, the gospel of holiness, of, of grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness and unrighteousness and to pursue righteousness with those that call on the Lord from a pure heart, that gospel goes forth and makes men righteous in their affections even as it clothes them with an imputed righteousness by faith alone through Jesus. It makes them yearn and hunger and set apart to be holy. Brethren, when there's no holiness, there is no joy, there is no salvation. Hebrews says that without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Pursue holiness. But he also says that all of this Son of God and with power and holiness was defined and proven by the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. This is just marvelous. The resurrection is the certification that everything that Jesus said about himself, everything the Father said, this is my beloved Son, hear ye him. All power and authority committed to me that you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory, that He will judge, He will save, He is King of kings, Lord of lords. All of these things were proven to be true by the fact that God raised Him from the dead. For it was impossible, Peter says in Acts 2, that death should hold Him. And He has made Him both Lord and Christ. In Acts 17, when Paul is preaching to the Gentiles there, and their ignorance and their worship of the unknown God. He says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent because He has appointed a day on which He is about to or He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He has ordained, the Son of God, with power by the Spirit of holiness. And He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. So even to the Gentiles, these pagan unbelievers who knew nothing of the law of God, he says, I assure you, God has overlooked your, your centuries, your millennia of rebellion, but he has given assurance and he calls you as well as the Jews to repent of your sins. Turn and believe the gospel, receive the Spirit, and he has given assurance of that judgment which is on the doorstep of his wrath if you don't, and he's given assurance of that by raising the sovereign judge and king from the dead. There's your proof. So the gospel truth, brethren, is about Jesus, His kingdom, His righteousness, His holiness, and His resurrection, about an imminent judgment. It also is about declaring what He has done, just declaring not only who Jesus is, but what He's done for you. And we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I remember the old hymn, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus, His child, and forever I am. Brethren, I just want to challenge you today. We move on. You know, again, we're not all called to be street evangelists, but do you love to just tell people about what God has done for you? Do you relish that opportunity? Oh, God, that I would, whether somebody I work with, some guy on the street, some person that I give something to on a street corner, a, a lady in abortion, let me tell you that Jesus saves, He transforms. 
He changed me. I do believe in conversion, not therapy. <laughs> I believe in conversion, brethren, because I'm one of the converted. There's hope in Jesus. Don't hesitate to declare it. Going further, Paul just talks very briefly about the gospel mission. We talked about the gospel truth. Consider the gospel mission just real quick in verse 5 to 15. Again, I'm just going to fly over this. He talks about this. The goal of the gospel, he says, verse 5, is to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations. I just want to drill that down on that. The just will live by faith, as he says, by believing in or literally into the name of Jesus Christ, by believing everything that God says about Jesus as he's revealed to us in the scripture. To believe in or believe into Jesus isn't just to make a bare profession. It means to put your trust, your faith in the name of Jesus and all that that means. What Paul just said, right? That he is Jesus that He is the eternal Son of God with power, the Spirit of holiness. Jesus, the Christ, the Lord. That He was raised from the dead. He is the righteous judge of the earth. That's what it means to believe in Jesus, brethren. To put your trust in Him, holy as He's revealed to us in the Scriptures, and to lean onto that. And He says, the goal then is to bring about the obedience of the faith among all nations. Brethren, if you were ever looking for a clear proof text about why we hold to a theonomic gospel, there it is. Jesus' lordship means that he is not only there to save people from the penalty of their sins or even just to save you and me, as glorious it is, from the power and prevalence of bondage to sin. He does that, but it's to bring about the obedience to the faith among all nations. Brethren, it's what Jesus said, teaching them, discipling nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you with the assurance that he is with us always. So that means if we say Jesus is Lord, his righteous law is the standard by which judgment will be meted out. As we'll see in a minute, that means there's a call to expose people as unrighteous and drive them to Christ, who is also there, who is an atoning Savior and propitiation and advocate. So brethren... Let's hold to the, to the gospel that says Jesus is Lord and that we press the gospel and the demands, the call of the scriptures into every area of life and we seek to bring the righteous reign of Christ to bear in every area of our culture, area of life to which we're called. Jesus is Lord means that. It also, Paul speaks here of the means about this gospel mission. The goal is to bring about the obedience of faith. Look at verse 9 to 13. Paul just exhorts them there uh, in summary. It says that they would pray. He, he thanks God that their faith has been spoken of throughout the whole world. Again, the idea that their faith has been proclaimed. The people know about what's going on in Rome because they like to talk about what's going on in Rome with Jesus, right? They just like to tell people. But he says that he always makes mention of them in, their, in his prayers and his goal is that he would find a way in the will of God to come to them, to establish them, that they would be encouraged together. He speaks there about how he had been hindered. And his prayers had been that the, though his efforts had been hindered thus far, that he would overcome and find a way in God's will so that they would come and have fruit to preach the gospel to them afresh at Rome. As both to Jew and to Greek. That's his call. And so I'm going to take that to say it's a call to prayer. 
As we consider the gospel mission, the gospel only overcomes through the prayers of the saints. Prayer for open doors. Prayer that God would open doors, that He would give him a holy boldness to go through those doors, and that He would give him a wisdom and words that no man could refute. We pray, but also, he, again, for this idea of the proclamation, that he would be able to find a way in the will of God to come through God's providential open, opening of doors to come and preach the good news far and wide. Well, that's, that's how the gospel mission goes forward, brethren, by the faithful prayers of the saints. God hears, and he will open doors even overseas through the prayers of us here. He will do things in Myanmar to, to, for the brethren to preserve them and to cause them to have opportunities to speak the gospel when we pray for them here and when others do. Notice then verse 16. We've talked about the gospel mission. Look at the gospel's power. This is really the heart of the thing. Verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed. Here's why Paul is eager to preach the gospel even all the way to Rome. He says, because I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of, of Christ. Notice he called it the gospel of God in verse 1. Here it's the gospel of Christ. Same thing. It's the gospel of the blessed and glorious God. It's the gospel about the good news of who Jesus is and the restoration to God in him. And that gospel, he says, is the dynamite. Literally, it is the dunamis. It is the power of God. Unto salvation for all, everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. So the gospel itself, this, procla- this proclamation, the preaching of the word, is the power of God that brings about salvation for all who believe. Now we need to remember, brethren, that the power comes as the Holy Spirit who is present in and with us, as He testifies along with us into the hearts of men as we speak to their ears. There's two testimonies that are actually going when the gospel is preached. There's the testimony that is heard by the ears, and there's the testimony that is heard and the effectual calling going on in the heart. You remember in John chapter 16, I won't ask you to turn there, but Jesus describing the work of the Spirit in this capacity. He says, he says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Well, that's great. Well, what is the Helper going to do? Here's what he does. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me presently, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Brethren, this is what we call effectual calling. You and I are called in God's grace to be used to make a calling to the ears and the hearts, the proclamation, faith cometh through hearing, hearing by the word of God, to just tell the good news of what Christ has done, to tell people who Jesus is and the hope that's in him, but the Reality is is that we do that knowing that by the prayers of the saints, it is the Spirit who is actually testifying in a way that we can't. He is speaking into their hearts, convicting of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. So brethren, that gives me hope. I'm not Charles Spurgeon. I'm, I'm not Jonathan Edwards. I'm not George Whitfield. I'm just Steve Morris. Right? But I can talk to people 
And I can have confidence so that when I, say, I pray and say, Lord, would you testify with me? Though unheard, would you do speak into their hearts as I speak to their ears? The Spirit, brethren, is there to help. See, I don't have any power in me, neither do you. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, in fact, why don't, you, why don't you go ahead and turn there. This is a passage I would have you like. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul, Paul is just as clear as can be here about this, and I would have us to see it afresh. The power uh, of the gospel has nothing to do with you and me. It's rather the power of the cross of, and the power of Christ. Look what Paul says, um, uh, verse 18 and following. Or verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, of a God who died to save his people, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's Romans 1.17, right? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. For it is written, Paul says in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. He's going to talk about that just a minute in verse 18 and following. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message of the gospel preached to save those who believe by His sovereign power. Verse 24, But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, it is, the gospel is the gospel of Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Brethren, that's what the gospel is. It is power. When the gospel is preached in faith, when it is proclaimed the good news as well as the bad news, brethren, the Holy Spirit will help us. He will help His church, and He will let the gospel be powerful. We must not be ashamed, Paul says. I'm not ashamed. Remember the words of Jesus. Whoever is ashamed of me, he says in Luke 9, 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his fathers and the holy angels. Matthew 10, you remember Jesus says, whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father. Whoever denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father. Brethren, what we have today is pastors all court, Christians, not just pastors, but Christians, brethren, your brethren, my brethren across Canada, many even in the States who are saying today, we will not be ashamed of the gospel of God. How can I be ashamed of him who bought me and sought me with his redeeming blood? How, how can I be ashamed of anything that God says or does? The God who is the creator of all the heavens and the earth, of Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, of the author and finisher of my faith, the captain of my salvation. How can I be ashamed of him? I take hope because he says that Jesus in Hebrews 2, he says that he is not ashamed to call you and me brethren. For he has died for you, declaring the presence of God, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Isn't that great? He's not ashamed of you. Don't be ashamed of him. Don't be ashamed of anything Jesus says in the word. Not just Jesus and the apostles, but the word of God. There are parts that are harder than others. I'll grant you that. There are parts of the law of God that 
are different now because they've been brought to fulfillment and we keep them in a different way now. But brethren, what God calls righteous, what His standard of righteousness, His standard of holiness and of His gospel, that there is, neither is there salvation in any other name but the name of Jesus by which man must be saved. Brethren, don't ever be ashamed. And as we're going to see now in just a moment, we're going to call righteousness what God calls righteousness. And that's why verse 17, he says, Because in this gospel, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just will live by faith. So here's the deal. The gospel simply is that God is righteous. He is holy. Because He is holy, He must bring wrath and vengeance on those that despise His righteousness, that walk and practice unrighteousness. But it's also that the righteousness of God, as Luther discovered, that righteousness of God also compels him in righteousness to make unrighteous people just and righteous. Because God is a God who is faithful to his own name and fame and therefore to his covenant. Because God has sworn an oath by himself, Hebrews 6, and God who cannot lie swore by himself. He, he will keep, he will cause the promises made to Abraham for the blessing of the nations to be fulfilled. And he will bring it to pass because he is righteous. So that very righteousness of God that brings wrath on the heart and reprobate And on idolaters is the very righteousness which sought you and me, brethren. Because you were chosen to be Abraham's seed. And God in righteousness said, I'm going to redeem you from the guilt of your sin. And I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you Jesus as your righteousness within and without. Hallelujah. There's glory, brethren. God's righteousness, as Luther said, it went from being a terror to him is the most glorious and beautiful thing to him because he understood that righteousness of God is the means by which he saves the unrighteous, by which he is the just and the justifier of the one who puts their faith in Jesus. As Paul says in Romans 3, apart from works, he makes you righteous. He imputes Jesus as your covering, as your righteousness in the courts of heaven. But then he not infuses, but he imparts Jesus as your life. So brethren, that's why in the gospel you always hear me talking and putting so much emphasis on the fact that you are dead. Brethren, if you are still alive, then the righteousness of God has not been satisfied against your sin. Brethren, You had to die, and Jesus be formed in you so that his life, his righteousness becomes yours. Right? The only people who ultimately inherit eternal life are dead men walking. (laughs) That's true. Are you a dead man or a dead woman walking today by the Spirit of God? I hope you are. I believe you are. I'm not walking a green mile to the judgment seat. I am walking... Rather in green pastures on the sea, on the path to the celestial city. That's what you are. That's what I am. I'm in green pastures on a good shepherd. Brethren, the righteousness of God. The message that God has offered amnesty and pardon for all who will believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent, trust, and put their faith in Jesus alone. And he will save them to the uttermost. 
and make them righteous and give them righteousness. So brethren, the simple application is this. Brethren, you and I are the light of the world. And the light that we have is the light of the gospel of God. Jesus says, let, your, not, let not your light be covered. Don't, don't be like with a lamp, uh, a candle on a lampstand, don't cover it. Cities that are on a hill are supposed to be seen. They, they can't be hidden, right? Brethren, the call for you and me is to be a people that say, we believe the gospel of God. We believe the truth of Jesus who saved us from our sin, who does save. And we believe the truth of the Son of God, and therefore we will not budge not even one inch. We will not compromise one inch of the truth of the gospel. Compromise is the language of the devil. And as we're going to see, that is the path to damnable idolatry. Just look at the second point then in brief. Bob already read this, and I said we're not going to... I'm just going to hit a couple key points. If we're going to preach the good news for modern man, brethren, it must be against the backdrop of first not budging one inch on the bad news. Because, see, that's what's going on in Canada right now. That's what's going on across most of America, just not quite as onerous yet. Brethren, the call is stop proclaiming what you say is the bad news. Stop saying that abortion is murder. It's just, just be far, not even much of the evangelical church today, brethren. You know, there's, there, the woman is the victim here. Brethren, we want to see women know Jesus. We want to see them know and be redeemed by Him. We want to see the misery of sin broken, but we need to be truthful, brethren. The call is not only to save your baby, but it's to women and men going with them to abortion clinics as well as the doctors. Don't murder and take innocent life because God is a just judge. And we need to proclaim that boldly. I, I have appreciated deeply the work of End Abortion Now. I, you're familiar with them. Um, I think it's where we need to be. To be honest, we, we're, it's a call for us to be more bold, not, not angry and vengeful, vindictive, but honest and truthful about what abortion is, brethren. It is murder, legalized shedding of blood, and the blood of the martyrs of the babies cries out to the living God. And that's why Leviticus 18 says that when that happens over time, the land will literally vomit you out. As people offer their children in the spirit of the age to our modern molechs, Believing the promise that if you offer your children, it will be well for you. I just read, a, read something this past week, shocking on Christian headlines, but did a survey among white uh, evangelicals. This is evangelicals, brethren. Not the, not the world, but professing evangelicals about how they viewed, how, how important did they think that marriage and children were, relatively speaking. Is it important at all was essentially the question. If so, you know, it, amazing. It break, breaks the categories down. Among evangelicals broadly, among evangelicals broadly, just over half, 56%, said that, yeah, okay, marriage and children are kind of important. Versus, nah, don't need, 
marriage. I, I assure you, they're not saying that because they're all practicing abstinence. They're just saying, no, yeah, we're, 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 we, sure, yeah, we, we do what the world does. We, you know, we just, you know, fulfill our sexual desire. But marriage and certainly child raising, think, thinking generally, nah, not important. Just over half. That's staggering. Church, brethren, the idolatry of the rot is in the church. And it's that mentality that drives abortion, is it not? Because if, if we're going to put together the supposed false gospel of liberation of free sexual practice as much as you want, but without the commitments of, of, of child raising and, and of marriage, well, where do all those abortions come from? Why do we even see so many professing Christians going to abortion mills? Because they are drinking the Kool-Aid, the lie of the world, the idolatry of the world. They're murderers. You know, we need to be honest about that. Look what, look what Paul says here, just in brief. He says that the death sentence of God, of condemnation is on those who persist in rejection, rebellion against the true uh, God due to their idolatry. Look, just look at, it's kind of like cancer. I'll, I'll just break this down and use that. It, it's like a, a death sentence of cancer. And, the, and, and the, the cancer is here. And he goes in stages, like stage one, two, three, four, right? As, as it just grows and metastasizes, unless the gospel cures it from the great physician. Stage one, verse 18 to 20, 23, says, they, they suppress the truth. They know the truth. They know what's right about God's power he says, and about his, literally his Godhead, his, his divine nature is what that word means, theotes. They, by what is made, even without reading the scriptures, in, in, in the, the, the nature of creation and the things that God made, it said is evident to the consciences of all about that God is powerful. There is a God. Things didn't just make themselves. That's why the evolutionary lie is the demonic from the pit of hell because it, it is replacing God, right? To explain everything without reference to God, people know better. They're not stupid. It's like, it's like you know, the, the, the mantra of all atheists, right, of Darwinists. It's like, there is no God and I hate him. That's the truth. There is no God and I hate him. They know there's a God. Richard Dawkins knows there's a God. We don't give, by the way. We don't give. That's why we don't give credence to people who say that they need evidences to believe. Evidences are fine, but they don't cause faith, brethren. The problem with people is not their lack of evidence. The problem is not here. The problem is that they hate God. They suppress what they know to be true in unrighteousness because, remember Jesus said, God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. This is the condemnation. What? Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Right? For everyone practicing evil does not come to the light. They love the darkness. will not come to light lest their deeds should be exposed. But he who does what is right comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they're done in God. That's the issue, suppressing the truth, calling evil good, light, darkness, because they want to stay in the darkness because they know that the light is out there. They're like people who, here it is, three in the morning, and it's the pitch black of night, 
and they've convinced themselves that the sun is never going to come up again. There is no sun. All there is is darkness. Brethren, just because they are blind and can't see the sun shining in the middle of the day doesn't make it not so, right? They can still feel its heat. They know it's there. And that's Paul's argument. They, they reject God as creator, as the potter has sovereign rights over all his creation, and they deny the Godhead. They deny the nature of God as holy and righteous. And they are without excuse, Paul says. They reject God as he has revealed himself in his works of creation and providence, and therefore they embrace ungodliness, which means they reject the first table of the law. You will not have any other gods before me. You will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Right? You will not worship God through images made in the Im- uh, like fallen man and creatures. We will not make God after the image of man in our own image, which is really what's going on today, right? What is the modern state of the world except that the world and even so much of the church has made God just like themselves? God will not be mocked, brethren. <laughs> you know why the church right down here on the corner is First United Church with their big sign, Jesus accepts everybody, we accept everybody just like Jesus. The reason why they can put that kind of tripe up on a sign is because they believe in a Jesus who does not exist, in a God who doesn't exist, but they have made a God after their own image. But that Jesus whom they worship is the one who will crush them and will count them as enemies and rebels on the last day. They do not fear God. And because of that, they do what we call the hate exchange. Everybody know we talk about the great exchange, right? What is the great exchange? 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the great exchange. Well, what idolaters do is what we call the hate exchange. Notice how Paul describes it, verse 21. It says, despite knowing the truth of God and creation and conscience, they refuse to ascribe glory to him. They won't glorify God as God. No, sir. We will not honor him and his power and his righteousness. And he says that they will refuse to be thankful. We will not give thanks. They may still hold Thanksgiving Day because it's a nice long American tradition and they like to eat turkey and watch football. But brethren, they do not give thanks to the living God because they don't honor him as God. It says the, the first heart of darkness, they deny God's glory. They will not honor Him as God. They will refuse to give thanks for His ongoing blessings from His hand, for His long-suffering mercies against their sins, and rather they heap it up to the day of judgment. And Paul goes on in verse 21b, he says that therefore they have futile speculations. They give themselves to vain, foolish pursuits. It's kind of like the Tower of Babel, right? Look at us. We'll make a tower to heaven. What are our towers of Babel today, brethren? You know, Boy, we could list uh, you know, searching for alien life forms, searching for life on other planets, searching for sending telescopes out into space to determine the origin of, 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 of creation and of life. I see these things like they, they find this little rock on Mars and it's like, oh, maybe there was once water here. Maybe that's proof that there was once life and that's where Earth came from. Vain, stupid, futile speculations. Vain pursuits. We can make a long list. And it gives way to a heart of darkness. Corrupted pursuits. 
wicked pursuits, seeking to rule and tyrannize people under the thumb of ungodly and unrighteous power, playing playing God in their heart, in their darkened hearts. You wonder where things like the Great Reset, where population, economic manipulation come from, suppression, tyranny, statism, communism. Brethren, darkness of heart, vain speculations. He goes on, it says, professing themselves to be fools, to be wise, they became fools. They, they set themselves up and masquerade folly as wisdom and ignorance as, as, as not. But they do not fear God, and so they have no knowledge, they have no wisdom. We set up cults of experts or establishment elites, and we say, hear ye them. The scientists have spoken. Right? The politicians will, are your saviors. We have wisdom. Don't question it. Brethren, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged, here's the exchange, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image, for the values, for the power, and the righteous, unrighteousness of corruptible and corrupted man. That's what he says there. We make God in our image, and we begin to do as corruptible man and say that we are divine and that is the standard. Brethren, God's not going to have any of it because look what happens. Stage one cancer goes to stage two. He gives them over. says, you know what, you like your idolatry? Tell you what, let's give you more of that. It's like the children of Israel out in the wilderness, right? We want manna. Well, we want, we hate manna. We want to go back to Egypt. We want meat like we had in Egypt. God says, you know what? Let me give you some quail, not just one, not just two, a month until it comes out your nostrils. Do you loathe it? It says here, I'm going to give you over to your uncleanness. You love worshiping gods like yourself, walking the lust. I'm going to give it over to where now you're going to be given over to all kinds of uncleanness. Just walk in it. See how that works for you, world. See how that works for you, church. Walk in your uncleanness. Go ahead. Engage your abominable adultery. Engage your culture of pornography. Engage your culture of sexual lasciviousness. Engage your culture of kids don't matter, families don't matter. Fill in your blank. But he goes on and he says that all of these natural, according to nature, lusts that he gives them over, they don't repent. And so what is stage three? Verse 26 and 27. Okay, let's go further. Giving them over to vile, unnatural, contrary to nature passions, demonic passions and influences. Brethren, you want to know where LGBTQ plus is? It's right there. Brethren, those things are not they're unnatural they're contrary to nature even natural man stage one or two by nature knows that these things are vile and yet when god gives them over to a debased mind to vile passions we begin to revel in those things and rejoice and exalt in the most abominable perversions men with men women with women gender changing changing what is the natural order of things as if we could play God autonomously. And it's demonic, as I said. Brethren, 
This is not just flesh at this point. This is demonically controlled and driven. You want to know how I know that we are in a spiritual war, brethren? Our nation is a nation under deep demonic control and darkness. And it's because we are at stage three and four of, of, of loving and affirming unnatural, vile perversions. And that's why then stage four, look at 28 to 32, he just concludes, he says, God, if they did not desire to keep God in their affections, they won't repent. God then says, let's go all the way. Let me give you over to that debased mind to do all the, une- the evils and the wickedness that you can imagine in your heart. Fill up the wrath of your fathers. Fill it up. That's where a nation is and a people that have rejected thoroughly God and made themselves gods and idolaters in His place. They're filled with all kinds of beastly depravity and debauchery. I'm just going to mention in closing, look at a few of the things on this list, though. Verse 29. God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. They're filled, filled up with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality. So not, not just doing sexual immorality, but they're just filled up. It's just, it is the air they breathe. Filled with wickedness, filled with covetousness, filled with maliciousness. They're hateful and envious, murderers in heart, if not in, 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 as well as in action. Why are homicides out the roof, brethren, in our nation, in our cities? Because we're at stage four. Filled with murder, strife, families, marriages coming apart at the seams in hate, deceit, just deception and lies everywhere. Evil-mindedness, they're whispers, they're backbiters, they hate God, they're violent. Brethren, we're a society that exalts violence, that glorifies and sensualizes violence. That's, that's their stage four. They're proud, filled up with all pride and their arrogance. They're boastful, unforgiving. They know nothing of forgiveness. They know nothing of mercy. Not really. Tell you something, all this talk about social justice, that's not justice and it's not mercy. There's no mercy there. That's why it's a false gospel because there is no mercy of God. There is no gospel of God. There is no atonement. There is no dealing with sin. Just in it, in it, the unmercy, the lack of mercy, a perpetual and ongoing retribution. They know the righteous judgment of God. You notice they're too disobedient to parents, inventors of evil things. I, I think it's interesting he puts that there. A society that is and the throes of the, of the last stages of God's judgment is one where children are just perpetually, incessantly rebellious and disobedient to their parents. Parental honor has completely come down. And they know that not only they're deserving of death, they know that, but they approve of those who practice these things. Brethren, with this we're done. So what do we do? Steve, what do we do with all this? That's, that's a lot of doom and gloom. <laughs> Brethren, let me just read to you. Let's read to the words of Psalm 11. Let these sink in, and this will give our divine amen. Because, brethren, if you're with me right now, you may be saying, what do the righteous do? What do you do? What do you do? 
when the foundations are destroyed? Well, the good news is there's an answer. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, look, the wicked are bending their bow. Look, the wicked make their arrow ready on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. They may feel, is that where we are now? Are the wicked shooting at us? Not only in Canada, but here. Are they shooting? Are they looking for your demise? You bet they are. They're not even making pretenses about it. And the question, Christian, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, here's what the righteous can do. They can remember the gospel. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyes test the sons of men. He tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates wrath. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals. Fire brimstone shall be the portion of their cup, but the Lord loves the righteous. He is righteous. He loves the righteous. His countenance beholds the upright. Brethren, that is the gospel. Jesus is Lord. He is righteous. And he will judge those who hate him. He will judge those that practice unrighteousness. But he will save in his righteousness all who repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Brethren, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your good news of salvation in Jesus. I thank you that we have good news for modern man. I pray, Father, that we as a church will never, ever, ever leave this foundation. I don't want us to be just a people that affirms the gospel as a doctrine. Father, I want the leaven of the gospel to work its way through every fiber of our being. That we say that we're a gospel-centered and gospel-driven church, that would mean that we're a church that proclaims the bad news for modern man as well as the good news for modern man. That proclaims the truth of your righteous wrath as well as the truth of your righteousness that saves. Father, give us grace to stand in these evil days as children of light, holding fast the word of life. Father, give us wisdom and discernment, but above all, give us courage, Father, that we may walk as children of light. Father, in of ourselves, we will surely fail. In ourselves, we will cower before men. Our knees will fail. We will lack courage, and we will compromise, but with Jesus our sovereign Savior, we will stand in the Lord in the power of His might. Oh God, give us grace to do so. For we believe your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.